0: Sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists set Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co.
1: Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 128 and we're recording on April 29th. I am Sharifa Williams here with Jen Northington and today we've decided that we wanted to talk about Station 11, the book and the adaptation since we know a lot of you out there have probably watched it, have probably read it, and we are ready to have a talk and we have some thoughts.
0: Yeah, sure. it was <laughs> one of my favorite adaptations I think
1: of the past few years. I agree. I yeah. didn't know what to expect going in, but Right. I was gripped the whole yeah. time, so. and it's
0: it's interesting too because they did make a bunch of changes. Like they, I didn't realize quite how many changes they made until we were putting in our notes, and I was like, "Oh wow, they yeah. changed a lot of stuff." But it's one of those spirit of the t- original, I think. So
1: yes, I agree. I agree. I will be talking about <clears throat> all of those numerous notes we wrote about <laughs> the differences. Shortly, Um, but before we get started on that, we do have a very important announcement because listeners, it is time for our Every Few Years Listener Survey. So if you could please take a few minutes to come tell us about what kind of podcast content you like and what you'd like more or less of from us, go to bookriot.com slash survey to fill out the survey and you'll be entered to win a $50 gift card to the indie bookstore of your choice, which is super exciting. Uh, There are a lot of books you can buy for $50. Mm -hmm. And giving us your feedback will help us give you stuff you really want to listen to and less of the stuff you don't want to listen to. So it's a a sort of win-win situation. So again... That's bookriot.com slash listener survey.
0: I love seeing those come in. Like it's, you know, crunchy, crunchy data. (laughs) We make charts and things. It's all very exciting. Your favorite. It is. I love a chart.
1: You know I love a chart. And I'm always curious to see what those charts say. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about what y'all are looking forward to hearing more of from us. And just like that uh, anthropological expedition of mm. getting data from everybody. So, uh, But before we talk about Station 11 and news for the day, we're going to hear from our sponsor. Sometimes you just need to touch grass,
0: literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists set tailored book recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's
1: mytbr.co. Okay, we are back, and I am going to kick us off with, I guess I'll kick us off with a deep dive, actually, because I found this really interesting, and I found this uh, article from a while back while I was scrounging around for news, basically. Uh, (laughs) So I didn't realize that this is actually an article from December of 2021, but I was so interested in hearing thoughts from Madeline Ashby writing for Wired about cyberpunk, and I know that we've had requests in the past to talk more about specific types of genres, um under the SFF and I mean SFF and speculative umbrella. So, this is a great sort of thoughtful piece on cyberpunk specifically which a lot of you may know whether or not you know it's cyberpunk from books like Snow Crash and um like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Blade Runner, those uh, movies and books. But this goes into talking about some of those old classics and how cyberpunk needs to be reimagined and redeveloped for the modern era, specifically in that cyberpunk, especially when it started out, was talking about a kind of futuristic version of the world that is sort of becoming more and more our current reality. Mm. And so some of those ideas are becoming, it's like time to start, sort of question how those old ideas and the technology of today and the way we think about Movements of the day are colliding. And I thought this was interesting because it sort of made me think more about some of the great books that fit under the cyberpunk umbrella. Um, Think about those books that are coming out today and specifically about books by authors of color who are really imagining cyberpunk in a different way and taking that genre in new directions. And toward the end of this deep dive, the author talks more about people like Octavia Butler mm. and Nnedi Okorafor who are were and are uh, bringing cyberpunk into a new era and are questioning what our future will look like and what we'll do about our future in different ways. And it goes into talking about you know, really big societal issues and shifts we're seeing today, and some legislation and politics that are happening, and the war of the human body, like battles about the human body, especially with Roe v. Wade coming up. So it gets into a lot. There are a lot of layers in this onion. And there are some points where uh, I had questions about what cyberpunk is doing today. And Sort of wished for more books from that genre to come out that did ask new questions, but also it made me appreciate the books that are out now and are doing those things. um, Again, specifically from authors of color. So I think that if you do have questions about cyberpunk as a genre, and if you want to explore, What that subgenre did in the past and what it's doing now. And even the aesthetic of cyberpunk, which is a big thing um, that I probably knew more about in the past before I really got into cyberpunk books. Like cyberpunk fashion was a big Mm. thing, especially in the late 90s and early aughts. And there's this hilarious um, sort of chart the are you a cyberpunk uh graphic that came out in 1993 that i took (laughs) one look at and was like wow that is like super dated and a flash from the past (laughs) but i thought it was really hilarious um and there's a lot like i also want to link a recent post that came out on book riot that talks about some of the more recent cyberpunk books coming from publishers who are doing really interesting new things with the genre so yeah I thought this was really interesting
0: it is really interesting. I didn't have time to really dig into it before we started recording, but I just skimming alone. There's so many interesting points that Ashby is making and I am super curious to dive a little deeper into it. So thank you for floating that up. It's <laughs> no time like the present to to do a deep dive, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, even if it was from last year. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's fine. It's it's everything old is new again right that's exactly. How that goes. exactly that's how that goes uh all right i oh gosh there's so there's like i was like oh it's such a light news day. and i was like oh there's so many things i want talk about let's talk about yeah. this dune prequel news which i'm still trying to wrap my head around because like did i rem- did i know that this was happening or did i forget or did i not know anyway Y'all, there's a Dune prequel series happening at HBO Max. This is from Variety, reported on by Joe Otterson. And it's not just like they bought it. It's that they actually now have a director for the first two episodes. Um, The series is titled Dune, the Sisterhood. And... Perhaps, obviously, if you're familiar with Dune, it's going to follow the, uh, it's about the founding of the Bene Gesserit, which is pretty intense. Um, And it's set 10,000 years prior to the events of 10,000 years. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm dying. So, <laughs> uh I Yeah, I, I don't know, y'all. I really don't know. Um, I guess apparently originally Villeneuve was supposed to direct the pilot for this, but his work on Dune Part 2, which we also didn't know we were getting until Dune yeah. Part 1 was here, uh, is going to prevent him, which I, quite frankly, am not sad about. I, you know, <laughs> I did not think that the female characters in the Dune movie got as much screen time or as much impact as I wanted them to. And I was not unsurprised by that, quite frankly, given mm-hmm. what else I've seen of Villeneuve's work. So, like, you know, it, it was an enjoyable movie, but I had a lot of nitpicks about it, as you know if you listen to our Adaptation Nation episode about it. Um, Rank, I'm not familiar with. He has worked on chernobyl uh vikings bloodline breaking bad um walking dead like clearly he's done a lot of stuff uh i don't i don't know uh much about his work in terms of you know working with female representation specifically, I was happy to mm-hmm. see that a woman is the um, writer, showrunner, and executive producer, Diane Ademujan, who I need to look up and learn more about. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I have like six million feelings about this. I like, I'm interested, but I'm nervous. I don't know. I guess if anybody is going to spend, like HBO Max, as we're going to talk about later, has been doing a good job with mm-hmm. adaptations and uh, sci-fi fantasy properties, obviously. I mean, you know, Game of Thrones. Um, yes. Although, again, not without issues. So like yes. I like I said, I feel six million different ways about this. But this
1: is happening. So here we are. Yeah, I didn't know about this either until you linked the story in the notes. Uh, and I guess it, it comes as no surprise since we've been hearing so much about dune the movie uh it's easy for other news to get buried, and also it does seem like this is happening a lot, like you know, especially with these bigger epic stories yeah. when they get an adaptation these days because of the availability of streaming platforms it feels like it's very easy for them to spin it up into multiple projects for tv mm. and film mm-hmm. so i guess i'm not surprised i'm interested to see how they uh, reimagine this story and i am also happy to hear that there is a woman showrunner because i was about to have some side eye <laughs> just seeing the director in the first part of it uh, but I think that this is like uh, that that part of the story specifically with Dune is very interesting to me. I have never read the book myself, but when I watched the very old, very dated adaptation as a kid, they in particular were fascinating to me. Mm. So curious to see where they take this story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. So we'll keep an eye on it.
1: Well, I'm going to keep us going with adaptation news. And this story comes from Variety. It's reported on by Zach Scharf. And it's about the uh, adaptation, the film adaptation of Wicked, which was, of course, originally a book by Gregory Maguire, which then became a very successful, very popular Broadway musical and now is being adapted into film, which is a thing I feel like musicals being adapted into films is having a moment right yes, now. Yes, yes. Across the board. And so I I was like, oh, yeah, of course it stands to reason that a Broadway musical as popular as Wicked would become a film. And in the same way that Dune is being split up, this yeah. one... The news of the day is that Wicked is also being split into two films, and one is going to be released in 2024, and the other one is going to be released in 2025. So I, I never got an opportunity to watch the Broadway musical myself. I did read the book way, way back when. I think when it originally came out, which now feels like a century ago. Yes. And I just remember being like, the first thing I I had a question about when I heard that this was going to be adapted into a film was, is it going to be an adaptation of the book or the musical? Yeah, And immediately I realized it was going to be the musical, but if it had been an adaptation of the book, I was just recently talking about this, like, I remember things about the book that were like, wow, I cannot imagine this ever being adapted, this part of the book adapted for a musical because, uh, you know, kids would not be allowed in the audience. I no. think. <laughs> nope. Nope. There was a moment. So I, I kind of sort of was having some wishful thinking that it was going to be an adaptation of the book, just because I'm like, I I wonder how many people actually know about some of the elements of this story. But <laughs> I think people will probably enjoy watching the musical version of it, which is going to star Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo, who are going to play Glinda and Elfaba, respectively. So, and I am glad to see that they are, you know, making the cast diverse as far as I can mm. tell from these two. I don't know anything about the rest of the cast, but um, from these two actors. Actually, Cynthia Erivo specifically is yes, the only yeah. one. I don't know anything about Ariana Grande, so I'm not I- that new and cool and pop culturally (laughs) educated you know that was one of the first things that i
0: was like i mean i don't because i haven't seen the musical either i have no idea if it makes sense to turn it into two movies or not i have seen some commentary from other people who are very confused about this choice so like i i (laughs) defer to the experts on whether or not Splitting it into two is a good or a bad move. I was a little more startled by yeah the side by sideness. Ooh, I just knocked over my water bottle. Oh my! God. Gesticulating <laughs> so dramatically. Um, I was more surprised by the side by sideness of Cynthia Revo and Ariana Grande. Like they yeah are sort of different. Like in terms of uh you know history in in music. Like obviously Ariana Grande is a very talented pop musician, and Cynthia Erivo is a very talented Broadway and actress, you know, person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm guessing that this is like a move to try to appeal to different demographics at the same time. I'm super curious how that's going to play out. Going to be real interesting. (laughs) And But I love Erivo's work, so I'm actually extremely tempted, I will say, in a way that I'm like, I'm sure I would like the musical, but because I I know that like they have taken the book and made it family friendly I'm less interested mm-hmm. and like that also holds true for the movie theoretically except that I I like watching revo work so that I again I have a lot of different feelings about things today apparently
1: <laughs> yeah lots of conflicting feelings I think that that brings. That adaptations brings that out in people yeah. a lot of the time. More often than not, I would say. Uh, I think that's probably right. Yeah, well,
0: but, in non-adaptation news, I just thought this yes. was like a story ripped out of a book. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> South Korea is building a floating city. This is from Newsweek, reported on by Sukim, Kim. And I was like, did I know about this already? I can't remember, but... I certainly did not know this many details, so there is a whole plan for the world's first floating city. It will be set in uh, the port city of Busan and in South Korea. and it's super interesting because it's designed to be sustainable, completely sustainable and floodproof, which obviously in the era of Climate change and crisis of you know so many areas are suffering right now because of mm-hmm. climate change. And uh, it makes tons of sense, right? to when I think about like, oh right, we need a city that can survive rising coastlines and you know, tsunamis or whatever. Although it doesn't say if this is tsunami proof, so who knows. But (laughs) it's a super interesting concept, and it's actually a partnership um, between UN Habitat, the city of Busan, and Oceanics, which is apparently a sustainable design firm out of New York. And so there's lots of interesting details, like it's going to be coated in this special like bio rock material, and it's like a zero waste. And the design, you know, mockups are really interesting. It's three platforms connected by different things and they have all these ideas about like how people will you know live on it and i just thought it was really interesting and really i will like it's the kind of thing that i'm i want to be hopeful about because we do need Mm -hmm. new solutions to housing housing is a huge issue around the world in our country and other countries and sustainability obviously also huge and like we were saying like rising coastlines like people need places to live and we are we do not have the same access to land that we have had in the past so I will be following this. It's probably they're expecting construction to take 2 years, which I think is like very ambitious knowing what I know about yeah. smaller scale construction. Uh not likely to be completed before 2025. You know, I would bet it takes longer than that if I was betting on it. But I really am hopeful to see news like this coming out and I really Have my fingers crossed for everybody involved that it that it is sustainable, that it is accessible and that people can actually afford to live there who need housing and and that it, you know, does what it's supposed to do.
1: Yeah, I can absolutely envision a Hope Punk novel set on a floating city. I've read that (laughs) book like I've read it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, I love these stories where you know sci-fi and reality meet and i'm so curious about how they are going to like the accessibility issue was my first question like who's actually going to have access to this uh Mm -hmm. floating city what's that going to look like is it going to be a massive tourist trap or what right but it's still like putting aside my skepticism and things like that. It's really interesting and it does give me some hope for our future. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a nice way to end our news segment. So before we get started talking about Station 11, the adaptation and the book, we're going to hear from another sponsor.
0: And we're back. Yes. So we're going to, I actually made notes so we would do this in the right order this time. We're going to do That's a, a brief idea. overview <laughs> of Station Eleven for those of you who have not read or watched it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how we came to the book, which because we have very different stories about that, um, and then we'll dig into the spoilery adaptation discussion. So I was astonished to discover that Station <laughs> Eleven came out in 2014, which is eight ah. years ago. Like what? Uh, oh, and I wow. think I read it in a galley. So I, it has been a solid eight years since I read this book. Um, but yeah. obviously, I mean, maybe not obviously. It did make a huge splash. When it came out, it was, you know, everybody was talking about it. Everybody was reading it for good reason. It is the story uh, that takes place in two timelines of a collapse situation. It is, uh, you know, Mandel, Emily St. John Mandel, who's the author, was in a ton of articles during the pandemic because she wrote a pandemic novel eight years ago. Yeah. You know, and this is about a flu that has a really <laughs> rapid incubation rate and a really high mortality rate. It's like 99 point something percent deadly so most of humanity dies dramatically in a very short amount of time and we get storylines for various characters both at the point at which the flu is moving through the world and then i believe it's is it like 10 a decade later or is it even oh 15 years 15 years later excuse me yeah uh into the future when you know civilization is sort of trying to reestablish itself people have made things work and we follow uh, this is the best part of the book quite frankly this traveling symphony it's a theater troupe that has you know survival is insufficient written on the side of their caravan and they go around doing Shakespeare and theater uh, to the communities that have survived. So it's a really, it's a multiple narrative story. It's a collapse story. It's a during and post story. Um, and it's got great characters. It's very well paced, I thought. we. I was going to try to reread it before we recorded this episode, but my partner was like, I want to read it too. And so now we're reading it on a group schedule. So that's, I've only actually read the first like 50 pages at this point. So So I have not, but so, yeah, so I, my most recent reading of the whole book was eight years ago, but you read it much more recently.
1: Yeah. I want to say it was time. What is it? Uh, One or two years ago, probably. That I read it. So it was really recently, and I did not read it because I heard about the adaptation, so it must have been more than a year ago. Yeah. Um, And I read it because I knew it was a book that was very popular when it came out, and it sort of felt like an unavoidable read, except I just missed the train mm. when it came around. And one day, I think, I just had a copy that I'd purchased from powell's back in portland and it had always just sort of sat on my shelf and i kept looking at it and being like one day i should read it and i think i was trying to read it specifically for a backlist episode because Mm. i'd sort of run out of things to talk about it felt like (laughs) or needed some fresh material and i was like you know what this is an opportunity to finally sit down and read this book everybody is talking about all the time even years after publication So I sat down and read it, and it was just one of those unputdownable reads that I was so happy I finally got around to. Were you, was it
0: during the pandemic that you read it?
1: It, gosh, was it? I don't think it was. I think it was right before the pandemic, which I I don't know whether that, feels worse or right. <laughs> or better I mean, like is it- <laughs> it's probably better I I just
0: wondered if you because you know some people read pandemic books during the pandemic because it was cathartic yeah. for them to process in that way and some people avoided them so I was curious if that played into your reading at all but it sounds like it did not so
1: it didn't but I will say that I think the reason I have been reading a lot of pandemic books recently is because I enjoyed Station Eleven so much. So it doesn't feel as daunting to me to read pandemic books. And it does feel cathartic because I found Station Eleven to be mostly hopeful. And I think I'm seeking that a lot in the pandemic books I'm reading currently, even though I've taken a break.
0: (laughs) Right, right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, it is a hopeful book, ultimately. And I think it's interesting because I remember hearing that um, when she had when it first came out, you know, one of the things that Mandel said inspired it was like trying to imagine the world without social media, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's such a big part of our lives. It has been for a long time. And it's also pretty exhausting for a lot of folks. And so she was like, what if facebook just went away like what if it was wrong? Ah. But like what would it take to make that happen she's like well probably a giant flu <laughs> like, and uh so and so but it is it is interesting because you know being able to think about like yeah what happens to art what happens to the arts you know to theater to music to these kinds of you know intangibles that are not directly related to survival and that idea that survival alone is insufficient. Like we need art in the aftertimes. Um, and I think certainly the pandemic has shown us how heavily we rely on media and art to get us through difficult times. So it's, it does feel very true to me.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything you said. And, I think that a lot of the hopefulness of this story does come from, you know, the traveling symphony, because there are these people in this kind of shattered world, Mm. these survivors who are bringing that magic and the hope that art can inspire to people in all sorts of situations. So Mm. there's a lot of, I think a lot of people when they come away from reading this book, the traveling symphony stays with them. Yes. Uh, that was true for me, at least.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So the HBO adaptation, uh, HBO Max adaptation, is is interesting, you know? They changed a lot of things, like we were saying, and I think, before we get into the spoilers, if I was going to pitch it to somebody who had or had not read the book, I would say, A, you don't have to have read the book. Um, B, if you have read the book, like go into it knowing that there's a lot of changes, but that they stayed very true, I think, again, to the spirit of the novel. And I actually really liked some of the changes that they made. I thought they did really strong things for the character development. Um, I will say that there is... That, like you know the the show in particular is very representative you know racially and it has queerness on the screen um but it does have issues with ableism that were also different but also in the book and i've got a link to a great article on salon um from allison stein discussing that and we might talk about that a little bit more in the discussion but that's my like you know pitch like with caveats i think it's really good
1: yeah, I think that's correct, and I'm very glad I went into the adaptation not thinking it was going to be the same right. as the book. And I think the previews, like the trailers, yeah. did a good job of like informing me of that. So
0: yeah, yeah. So okay, so let's get into spoiler territory. Yeah, they, they really start right away in that first episode because. You know, our main characters, like two of our main characters, right, Jevin and Kirsten, they meet in the book. I did get to this part of the book. They meet at the play where Arthur Leander dies of a heart attack. But they Jeevan doesn't bring her back to, with him to Frank's apartment. They she in the book, she goes off on her own to, you know, meet mm-hmm. up with her parents.
1: Yeah, I knew that was the part of the trailer that really tipped me off that this was going to be different. And I remember being in like our staff slack being like, yes. oh, they changed a big thing there yeah. because I saw them like together still. And I was like, wait a second, this scene where Jeevan is in the grocery store, Kirsten isn't with him. Right. Uh, and so I was like, what's going on there? But yeah, they they have a very brief meeting on stage when after Jeevan goes up. To try to save Arthur, and then Kirsten is sort of, you know, shuffled off by the Wrangler, by the person who takes care of the kids who perform. And that's that, even though Kirsten's story goes on, and so does Mm Jeevens, like her story isn't linked indelibly to Jeevens in the way it is in the adaptation, and in the adaptation. Her relationship with Jeevan is a huge part of her whole story.
0: I do think it was really smart, though, because it they they were so the beating heart that relationship was so the beating heart Ugh, of yeah. the show and like was so important and really gave um both characters a lot of beautiful moments to you know show us who they are both as themselves and in relationship to other people so i i i liked that change ultimately like I'm not saying I think it should have been done that way in the book I just really enjoyed that like alternate version of what Jeevan and Kirsten's interactions could have been like
1: yeah I was really moved by their story and by The feeling of sort of guilt and remorse Kirsten carried with her through the series that she sort of had to come out of. Like she's dealing with this internal turmoil all the time and we see a lot of her backstory through, you know, memories she has, fond Mm -hmm. memories and, and traumatic memories of being with Jeevan and Frank in those initial days as the flu wiped out most of humankind and it also propelled us toward this conclusion that was made particularly satisfying by the two of them yes. reuniting which was a mm-hmm. thing like I really hoped would happen but yeah. I wasn't sure would happen. like I didn't know if their ships would pass in the night yes like, you know I was so like please don't let this happen I know it would be an artistic way to deal right. with it but I don't want I want the satisfying reunion <laughs> oh I had the same concerns in that episode especially
0: because it the show leaves it open up until the moment that they actually reconnect where they could have like Jeevan could have left already you know before yeah. the performance like we don't know that at the end Jeevan is going to stay for the traveling symphony's performance of Hamlet we don't know that um And we don't, and Kirsten isn't on stage either. So he could have stayed and then gone and never seen her. So it's like, oh my gosh, like, are they gonna, I was just sitting there like (laughs) biting my nails. And I was so happy that they got to have that moment together.
1: Oh, so like, so healing, so healing. It was wonderful. So wonderful. And the scenes where they are All hanging out together in the apartment and, you know, the whole thing with Kirsten writing her own play. Yes. Like, basically writing the play of Station Mm Eleven and, like, these two unlikely grown-ups coming together to take care of this kid they kind of have nothing to do with. Right, it was just heartwarming. And it was like, also, wow, I don't know how I would deal with this challenge of like, taking care of a yes. tween yes. in the end times. Like, how do you? <laughs> right. How? How? Yeah. And I guess this is the point
0: where, I, you know, we got to talk about justice for Frank. So... In yes. the book, they did change some things about Frank, but not. I mean, yeah. In the book, Frank uh, uses a wheelchair and dies by suicide, um, because you know it's this like ableist trope of the heroic sacrifice. Like, mm-hmm. you'll you'll move faster without me, etc. Which you know, the, one of the things I loved about this article that I'm linking to by Allison Stein is Stein is like actually, disabled people are the most adapted to worlds that are not adapted to them. Like, we are the ones yeah. who are constantly figuring out how to survive in a world that does not care about our needs. And so, like, in fact, we are more equipped for the apocalypse than other people. And I was like, that's a really good point. <laughs> like, we yeah. all we all do have limitations. And knowing how to adapt is crucial to moving through the world. And, you know, Stein also makes the great point that, like, an eight-year-old is not gonna be that much better on the road than somebody who uses a cane, which is they gave Frank a cane in um, the show. So it's it's and 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 in the show, Frank is killed by a brigand who invades the apartment and. Um, I agree with Stein that it was a very like it felt, again, very heroic sacrifice leaning into that ableist trope. Um, I also don't understand why they gave him a drug addiction that then like magically went away. Like that was yeah. I don't understand a lot about what they did with Frank.
1: Yeah, that that was super random. I I don't know if it was some sort of weird, uh, not great callback to the original te- like I, yeah. I didn't understand the addiction to the point where I was like was I misremembering right that whole like very brief scene of like Jeevan yeah. seeing drugs in mm-hmm. a drawer or something or was I like did I misinterpret that no, but when I read no. it in this article you linked I was like I knew that that was weird like yes. why did they include that and and I also thought, you know, like I, I wondered before I started watching what they would do with Frank because reading Station Eleven a couple of years ago, having read a lot about, you know, disability justice mm-hmm. and coming to that part of the story, I remember cringing and yeah. being like, mm, this is not good. Uh, so I didn't know how they would handle it with the adaptation and i agree that they did not do a great job by frank they did not give frank uh the story he deserved and i like everything in this piece really resonated um and i wish they could have done better and there were all sorts of things where i could see like the way they directed it thinking because they had you know, included Kirsten in Jeevan's life in a very Mm -hmm. specific way. And he did take care of her in these end times. And as they're out in this uh, isolated cabin, like, of course it would look bad if... They let the story of Frank dying by suicide happen and it still looks mm-hmm. bad as they yes. adapted it too. Yeah. Like Yeah. They could know. have done
0: they could have done it differently and in, in, in a more representative slash interesting slash good storytelling way. Like it's just not great storytelling, I think, on top of it being ableist. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this piece also brought up one of my f- favorite frank scenes though which is the moment where he raps (laughs) yes
0: it's such a good moment oh my gosh and actually frank and kirsten's interactions were some of like obviously the Jeevan kirsten uh relationship is really important but frank and kirsten the way that they understand each other because Mm -hmm. they are both creative like artistic minds. Oh, it was just like, oh, God, it's just so oh. there was so much potential there. And, I, you know, oh, anyway, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. It's a real <laughs> missed opportunity on, on several levels. Um, Can we talk about the other thing that was the most confusing <gasps> about this, which is the profit? Yes. Can we talk about the changes to the profit? We like,
1: have to talk about
0: whew. it. <laughs> so in the show, right, we get a sort of less evil prophet, sort of? Like, it's very confusing what they did with the prophet, because he is he is recruiting children. He's stealing children instead of grown-ups, mm-hmm. first of all. And, like, brainwashing them in this weird cult of Station Eleven. And uh there's a point at which after Kirsten has interacted with the prophet and tried to kill him, and he doesn't die, a bunch of the kids... Come after the grown ups with mi- landmines, and like die in explosions, yes, that and it was extreme like my partner and I talked about this a bunch. It was extremely unclear to me. I think that they were the implication was that because he was injured, he was not in charge in that moment, and it was one of the other children who organized that. but I actually don't. I don't know if that's true and I don't understand. I don't understand the whole like they give Tyler this very redemptive arc and I don't know how I feel about it because it was it was so unclear to me how they were managing that child kidnapping cult situation.
1: Yeah, I never was able to figure it out and Because of that, I sort of never got to the place where I was questioning that the prophet Mm. wasn't behind the kids, you know, playing martyr. Just because I did not, like, I didn't have a discussion about it or anything. It was 100% just living in my head as, like, a he can't possibly have a redemption after this. Like, how are they ever going to explain it? And they never did. And they just sort of did have this, you know mother-son storyline of Mm -hmm. being reunited and feeling like he had been cast out and neglected and he didn't even though i thought that he was sinister in the adaptation they didn't make him as sinister and as mysterious as Mm -hmm. they did as Um, Mandel made him in the book because Mm -hmm. he's super horrible in the book like next level he cannot ever be redeemed no um and I didn't think he could be redeemed in the adaptation either which is like I was just like left with a weird feeling yeah about his character and his storyline and then Kirsten's relationship yeah. with him and how they sort of became, like, not friends, but, right. you know. Accomplices. Uh, what you, yeah. Yeah. Like,
0: what? What? How does right. that
1: make sense? <laughs> yeah.
0: I really think that they just miffed the, the delivery of the excusing him from the landmine situation. Because there's a conversation where when Kirsten finds him and he is like, in the tower and they bring her to him and he's like, mm-hmm. she's like, I should just finish the job. They they sort of have a discussion about the landmines and he says, when I was injured, somebody else told them different stories. And like that I think was mm. meant to signal that he was not in charge of that. And then again, at the end, when the landmine thing recurs almost, he is already in the airport but he does like set off a signal so it's super it, they they really did not make it clear and like I, my own the only reason I'm so stuck on it is because I have to believe that giving him a redemptive arc they meant it to be clear that that wasn't his idea but I don't think they did <laughs> or yeah. or they have some weird ideas about redemption <laughs> which is also possible I guess I don't know
1: yeah I I don't know where they were coming from, but I I don't know. I think they did definitely miss the opportunity to communicate more clearly that the prophet was not in charge of literally blowing up children. Yeah, um yeah. So I was like, I I kind of wanted Kirsten to turn around and, you know, tell him off and yes. give him Finish the, the job. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, should I say that? But like, <laughs> get him out of here. <laughs> get him out. Yeah. So the profit part of the story was a weird detour from the source material yeah. that I, I don't know how to make sense of in my head. Yeah. But, yeah. um, but there were other things that you know made the story really like that love. Leveled it up, I guess, for me, in a way. Like Miranda as a character, if we can talk about her for a minute. MVP, like, so good.
0: Oh, my gosh, that actress was so good. The way they, like, dived into that storyline was so
1: good. I loved it. She, yeah, it was excellent. I remember um, reading Miranda's story in the book, and... Miranda is played by Daniel Deadweiler. I just looked her up. I I did not know that off of the top of my head. (laughs) But this actor makes like... Deadweiler does such an amazing job playing Miranda. I did not think of Miranda as being a powerful character in the Mm -hmm. way Miranda was in the adaptation. And... That scene where she set fire to the pool house was just like, yes, this, I, I have all sorts of feelings and you have had such a miserable time with Mm -hmm. this person and you have been been betrayed in so many ways. And her story was kind of scattered throughout the book. Uh, The biggest scene I remember, at least, from... Miranda's storyline in the book was that dinner party scene where Mm. she's just kind of feeling completely out of place among these Hollywood celebrity types and intellectuals who are trying to show each other up and show off. And Miranda's over here like meticulously working on this project. And you're like, what is it about this story Station Eleven that is making her feel like she has to spend every minute of her waking life on it. But she was such a fascinating, interesting character in that she had this dedication and this passion to this thing that was really the thing that drove this entire story. It was like this big connective piece between all of the characters Mm -hmm. and especially with Kirsten and the Prophet. So... I just thought it was really great that they really brought Miranda as a character to life and they did more for that mm-hmm. character than they did in the book. So I loved that aspect of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're going long. So and I have like a oh, billion yeah. things I want to <laughs> say, but just to wrap up my own feelings about it, I thought. I thought uh, pretty much all of the acting was fantastic. I really respect the work that these actors and the directors did. Um, I also really loved how, especially I think with Miranda, the show expanded the world a bit and um, we got to see more pieces of it. And I also thought they did an amazing job with the traveling symphony, like bringing that to life, the characters, the, you know, the, the aesthetics, the everything like visually so stunning so stunning
1: yeah my final thoughts are definitely about the traveling symphony like that the 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 plays they put on the yes. costuming the drama Lori like petty like come on i love her <laughs> i i was so happy to see her back again i i can't remember the last thing i saw her in yeah. but i was like oh my gosh i know yeah i know laurie Petty. what what is she doing in here and so i i just loved everything about the traveling symphony i wanted to join the traveling yes. symphony but perhaps in better times Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah agree agree but wonderful wonderful job with that aspect in particular such a great such a great adaptation Mm -hmm. well unfortunately because we want to talk forever about this uh, we have to end the show here so thank you for listening to us talk about if you haven't watched the adaptation and you just went ahead and listened anyway I still think you should go ahead and watch it spoilers like it doesn't matter no just watch it go ahead and do it yeah SFF Yeah! is sound edited by Caitlin Brame. Many thanks to her for making us sound fantastic each and every episode. Uh, for more recommendations, you can check out bookriot.com and you can find our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Thank you so much for listening. You can email us at sffyat at bookriot.com. And if you do have a moment, please review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help people find us. You can also find us online in between shows. Where can they find you, Jen?
0: I am on, well, not so much Twitter right now, but Tumblr as Jen IRL. (laughs) I'm taking a Twitter break. Uh, And so, yeah, Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL.
1: And you can find me on Instagram at s Williams. That's S-Z-A-I-N-A-B Williams. Until next time.